Well, open your Bible to John chapter 16. John chapter 16. Shay has read the text. Maybe I could start at the end and then we can go from there. John chapter 16, verse 33, at the end of that section, he said, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. I love that phrase there as we begin with the end of our exposition, that in me you have peace. Peace is a word certainly waking up this morning that all of us desire, but maybe few experience. Historian Will Durant said that in the last 3,500 years of existence, there has been less than 300 years that could be called peaceful in the world. In fact, if you added it all up, over 8,000 peace treaties have been brokered and then broken. 14,000 wars um, have taken place and been fought, resulting in 4 billion deaths. On a national level, certainly we are a troubled society. It's been hard to watch the news, is it not? To watch the shooting and the events in Gilroy, then in Texas, El Paso last night, and then to wake up this morning and to read more about Ohio yesterday. There are many dead. I probably try not to give the number because information is still rolling out, but there are more dead in mass shootings in 2019 here in the United States than there are days of 2019. And this has been a troubling time. And in the midst of that, Jesus says, in me you have peace. In this world you will have tribulation, but he says, take heart, I have overcome the world. You might ask, how does this stuff happen? I mean, how, why does this stuff take place? You know, we could ask that, but the Bible is very clear why this takes place. Very clear. Jesus said this in Mark 7. He said there that it's not what enters from the outside that defiles a person. He said what comes out of the person is what defiles him. For from within, Jesus said, out of the heart of men come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. Jesus said all these evil things come from within and defile a person. It is a world in rebellion to God a world in rebellion to its maker. And certainly at the Legionnaire Conference, they will be addressing that on unashamed of the gospel from Romans chapter 1. In fact, Paul said there in 128, they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, 
evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, he said, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossip, slanders, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but they give hearty approval to those who practice them. We're looking on a, on a culture that lacks what Jesus is bringing us to in John 16 on the subject of peace. He said, again, in me you may have peace, but in the world you will have tribulation. In the world, he said, you're going to have tribulation. And of course, when he says the world there, you know this in John chapter 16 as well as other parts of John and other parts of First John. He's not speaking of the physical world. He says in this world, he's talking about the world system of evil. That's what the word means. Sometimes it just means physical world. Sometimes it's the world of humanity. But often in Scripture and here, when it's spoken, it speaks not of the physical world, but the system of evil. Satanically, inspired system that controls, Paul said in Ephesians, this present darkness. That is the world in which we live. It is a demon-infested system of evil. It is a world controlled by Satan. And the battle, truly, in John 16, is that it's already been fought. Jesus said, I have conquered the world. But you know what's interesting about that? The world defines peace usually in a series of negatives. In other words, to live stress-free, to live without trouble, to live without conflict. And, and that's what the world looks for. In fact, I heard yesterday that three of the people who were involved in the, the crowd and the shooting that took place in Las Vegas when that man opened, fired out the uh, hotel window were... A number were killed. Three of those people who had survived that were also in the crowd at Gilroy. I mean, it's just unbelievable when you wake up and what goes on. And so usually the world thinks of Bobby McFerrin, and sometimes it just seems hollow when he wrote back in 1988, don't worry, be what? Happy. And yet this is the world in which we live. Some would say that Peace is a soul at rest from circumstances. It's at rest from individuals. But ultimately, as we look here to the Word of God, peace is found in the person of Jesus Christ. It's amazing that at that very moment that he's speaking this text to us, he is at the greatest conflict in his life, the greatest horror in his life. I've reminded you that as we find ourselves here, it is Thursday night, and the disciples are full of anxiety. They are full of sorrow. To say that they are discouraged would be an understatement. But all along the way in John's gospel, he's providing every single contingency for his departure. Oh, yes, they're going to be hated in this chapter. They're going to be persecuted in chapter 16. They're going to be killed by people who think they're serving God. But in the midst of it, he's offering them peace. 
He's offering them love. He's giving to them comfort by way of the coming Holy Spirit who he has promised to them. But nevertheless, as we zero in on this text, sorrow has filled their hearts. Look at chapter 16, verse 16. Jesus said, I have, excuse me, 16.6, I have said these things to you, and he said, sorrow has filled your hearts. In other words, it's Thursday night, and sorrow has taken over. Maybe you woke up like that today. Sorrow has dominated them. It is, as he writes and as the Spirit of God speaks, controlling them. It is, if you will, engulfing them. And so he gives this epic discussion from 1616 all the way down to 33. And he wants to help them. And he wants to give them vision regarding his departure and regarding his return. And so the governor of this passage is, look at verse 16. He said here, a little while and you will see me no longer. And again, a little while and you will see me. Now, what is he talking about there? He mentions at the end in verse 33 there that in the world you will have tribulation. He says, into the world to these disciples and certainly to us, you are going to have pressure. That word tribulation, flipsis, is used all over the Greek New Testament and it speaks of a, of a pressure. You're going to have trap pressure in this world. You're going to have sorrow. But look at verse 33. Jesus says in verse 33, in an amazing statement, but take heart. He says, I have overcome the world. Some translations might say there, take courage. Now that word take heart is the Greek word thesaritai, and every single time it's used, it is a command. What's fascinating about that command there to take heart or to take courage is every single time it's used, except with one small exception, it's used by our Lord. I mean, I suppose it would be one thing if your boss said, take heart, we're going to be okay. Or if your doctor said, take heart, you're going to be okay. Or if the forecasters for your agriculture said, take heart, you're going to be okay. The problem is, they have no ability to control that. But Jesus Christ does. And he speaks into your heart as he did to these disciples that day. And he says, take heart, take courage. And he's sovereign over the issues. Now, on what basis can he give this command to take heart in a world that is crumbling before the eyes of the disciples and crumbling before our own very eyes? Well, he gives two reasons for that, and that's the essence of our text this morning. He's going to do a transformation. Christ is going to transform your trouble into joy, and he's going to transform your trouble into intimacy. He's going to take you uh, from trouble to joy. 
and from trouble to intimacy with the Father. Let me just touch back where we were just a little, a few weeks back. Number one, he transforms your trouble into joy. Look at 1616 again there. We'll pick it up there. The text says, a little while and you will see me no longer. In a little, little while, in a little while you will see me. Now, what's he talking about there? They're, they're confused by that statement. It's interesting. That phrase drives the passage. A little while you won't see me. Then in a little while you're going to see me again. In other words, now you see me, now you don't. And it's used seven times right here. What's he talking about? Well, obviously, for us reading now, he is... Uh, talking about his departure. He's talking about his return. But the question would come, which, which departure, which return? Some refer to his departure from this earth and then his ascension into glory, and they say what he's talking about is his departure, his ascension, and his return at his second coming. And that, frankly, seems like a long time to me. In fact, John's the only gospel writer that uses that phrase, a little while you're not, you're going to, you're, you're, you know, I'm going to leave and then you're going to see me. You're not going to see me. He's the only one. So we're, I, I think that is a long time. Certainly he is coming back physically. Others refer to this as his departure from earth and return by way of the Holy Spirit, that the Spirit of God is coming. And certainly there's truth to that, but I think there's several clues here that argue for something more precise. I think he's simply referring to his death on the cross and then his return on an immediate level to the resurrection. You're not going to see me, then you're going to see me. And then I think he's fanning, if you will, into the future with the coming Holy Spirit into Pentecost. In fact, look at the text in verse 19. Jesus knew, verse 19, that they wanted to ask him. Now, it's interesting. They didn't ask him because if you go back to 17, the disciples said to one another. But in 19, he knew what they wanted to ask him. That's not hard for us to understand. He's God. And at times, he exercises his omniscience. And so he knew they wanted to ask him, so he said to them, is this what you are asking yourself, what it means by saying a little while and you will not see me, and again a little while and you will see me? And so he, he talks to them there, and he, he gives them a word, and he anticipates their question. And so he does two things. He gives them, number one, a promise. Here's the promise in verse 20. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will be turned into joy. In other words, you're going to be sorrowful, but then your sorrow is going to turn into joy. And he's speaking of the resurrection. There were obviously in the gospel records tears at the cross. Obviously in the gospel record, there were shouts of acclamation and joy. So Jesus here said, you're going to see him no more. However, they would see him. And he's speaking specifically of his resurrection after the cross. And so he gives them a promise. He's really giving them a promise between those three days when they flee late Thursday night or early Friday morning and those three days where they're despondent. You're not going to see me, then you're going to see me again. He gives them a promise of that. 
And then it says in John 20, 20, after the resurrection, they rejoiced going along with the theme of joy. But then he not only gives them a promise, but he gives them a parable. Look in verse 21. He said in 16, 21, when a woman is giving birth, it says uh, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. In other words, the very element that gives a woman grief in childbearing also provides her with the greatest joy, a child. And so look what Jesus says in verse 22. He said, so also, like, like that woman, you have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take that joy from you. Again, speaking of the resurrection, and obviously theologically, the verdict of man will be overturned by the justice of God. So the disciples' sorrow would be transformed into joy at the resurrection. So he not only transforms your trouble into joy, and this is where we pick it up, but he transforms your trouble, secondly, into intimacy. Now watch the text carefully. Pick it up at 23. In that day, you will ask nothing of me. And he says there, in other words, in that day, you're not going to ask me truly, truly. I say to you, whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Now, you'll note that he says in verse 25 there, excuse me, in 23, in that day. In other words, he's preparing the disciples for what's to come. And in that day, presumably the day of resurrection, certainly the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, in that day, the relationship with Jesus Christ and the relationship with God the Father changes. It is a change here, at least in the text of intimacy, of asking and receiving that marks the new age by his death, by his resurrection, and by the coming of the Holy Spirit. Look again at verse 23. He says, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. It is a stunning pledge of answered prayer. In other words, when that day comes, in that day, after my cross, after my resurrection, with my ascension and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2, he says, you can ask and you will receive. In fact, look what the text says in verse 24. Jesus said, until now, speaking to the disciples, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be made full. In other words, he's giving them and revealing to them and showcasing to them the intimacy that they'll be able to share with him and in just a moment, the Father. He, in essence, is telling the disciples, I'm physically leaving you, but you may directly ask the Father in my name. And his name, his character, unlocks, if you will, the riches of heaven. His name is based on the his merits and the worth of his character. And John 14 talked about this, and John 15 talked about this. 
In other words, in anticipation of the new covenant, you can ask and you will receive. Now, what's interesting here is you get on your own in chapter 16, just in verses 23 through 27, five different times he says to ask the Father. To ask the Father, if you will. In other words, there's an intimacy here. But look what he says in verse 25. Jesus said, this is an epic discussion. He said, I have said these things to you. Jesus said, in figures of speech. Now that opening phrase there, I've said these things to you. Is he just talking about here, this upper room discourse? Actually, they've left the upper room. They're making their way through the streets of Jerusalem, down through the Kidron Valley. They're going up. He will pray in John 17. He will be tried and arrested in John 18. Is he just speaking of the things that he spoke? Well, it could be, but I actually think when he says in verse 25, I have said these things to you, I think he's talking about the totality of his ministry. I think he's talking about the totality of the words that came out of his mouth. I have said these things to you. And then look at that phrase. Very interesting. He said, I've said them to you in figures of speech. Now, now what does that mean? It's, it's an interesting word, figures of speech. It, it's the idea here of veiled uh, truth. It's the Greek word paromia. And it's the idea that he spoke the truth, but at times the truth was veiled. And I think maybe that's why the disciples kept saying, what's he talking about? What are you saying? For example, he talked about raising up the temple in three days. Destroy this temple, and in three days I'm going to rise it up. Rise it up. They had no idea what he was talking about raising up that temple. In John chapter 3, he said a man must be born, what? Again, Nicodemus, of course, said, what are you talking about? How can I go back into my mother's womb? And Jesus, of course, was talking spiritually. In another chapter, is it John chapter 6 and 7, he talked about rivers of living water flowing in believers. What does that mean, rivers of living water? Maybe the hardest is what he said in John chapter 6 when he said, eat my flesh and drink my blood. And it was from that statement that many of the disciples had left him. And so what is he talking about here? Well, he's talking about here speaking truth, and it's not as though he wasn't clear. He's been super clear to reveal the Father, but that truth often came in a veiled language, if you will. In other words, it was held back by the incapacity of the hearers. He said, well, Scott, what do you mean by that? Look back at John chapter 16, verse 12. It says, I have many things, Jesus said, to say to you, but you cannot, what? Bear them now. He couldn't tell them everything. And he couldn't tell them everything because they didn't have the capacity to handle it. And not only did he not have the capacity, did they not have it to handle it, he's not died yet. He's not been lifted up on the cross yet. He's not given himself for you a ransom, if you will, for many. In addition to that, look at John chapter 16 in verse 13. When the spirit of truth comes, 
He will guide you into all of the truth. And so the Holy Spirit has not yet come. And so he says, though, look back now in 1625. He said, I said these things to you in figures of speech, but the hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech what will tell you plainly about the Father. And again, it's not as though as he wasn't understood or you couldn't know the gospel. All of his ministry was revealing the character of God. Remember in John 1.14, we've seen his glory. We've beheld, John said in 1.14, his glory. In John 1.18, it says that no one has seen God at any time, but he, speaking of Christ, has made him known. And so truth has come, but it's come, if you will, in veiled language. But Jesus says here in 25, with the coming of the hour, with the coming of my resurrection, with the coming of the Holy Spirit, with the coming of what Paul called the new covenant, Jesus said in verse 25, I will tell you plainly about the Father. Now, to me, one of the things that's just interesting here, you, of course, have heard of the parables of Jesus Christ. But did you know that after the gospel, there's not one writer that speaks of a parable? Everything from that moment comes out, if you will, in propositional truth. In other words, the veil, if you will, has been lifted. The hour is coming where I will speak plainly to you. And he's speaking, of course, of his cross, resurrection, ascension, and the coming of the Holy Spirit. So the hour's coming when I will no longer speak in figurative language, but I'll tell you plainly of the Father. In fact, there's more to that. Look at verse 26. Jesus adds, and you can underline, in that day, he's still speaking of that day. What day? The day of his resurrection. I think it has to include the coming of the Holy Spirit. In that day, you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf. He's speaking of that day again. In other words, when that day comes, when that hour comes, you don't need me, Jesus said, to request the Father for you. When the Holy Spirit comes, and we live in that age, you can go directly to the Father. Now, until that time, Israel and didn't have access to God until the cross, until the resurrection. They didn't have access to God. Nobody had direct access to God. But when the Spirit comes, you will have direct access to go straight to the Father. This is, he's going to transform your trouble into intimacy. Now, beloved, this was stunning to the Jews because when they considered the character of God, God was veiled from them. I told you in the Old Testament, they barely referred to God as their Father. In fact, they barely spoke the name Yahweh. They were afraid to speak it. In fact, the Jews symbolically understood it to be uh, that God was in the Holy of Holies. And you remember only a high priest could go in there, and that only once a year. And when he went in, he better get in and get out fast or he might die. But beloved, at the cross, 
at the resurrection. You remember the veil was ripped from top down to the bottom. The Holy of Holies is now available and open to us all. What a privilege we've been given. What a privilege you've been given. What a privilege in the midst of a broken world. You can cry out to your Father, Abba, Father. You can cry out even this morning to Him, Daddy. Now, you, you say, well, Scott, does Jesus still intercede for us? Oh, certainly. He is forever our high priest. He's just saying that you can go directly to the Father. In fact, the reason that he's interceding for us is it says in Hebrews 7.24 that he holds his priesthood permanently, okay? Because he continues forever. And it says in Hebrews 7.24 that he's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. So the, the, you can go, if you will, to Christ. He's interceding for you. You can pray directly to him. But here in this coming hour, you can pray directly to the Father. I think really what he's saying is you don't need a priest. You don't need another mediator. You don't need a spiritual leader. Oh, at times in James 5, you can call on elders to pray, and we need to do that. But you sitting here this morning, based on the transformation of his resurrection, have been given full joy in the forgiveness of sin, and here you've been given intimacy directly with the Father. You say, well, Scott, how can we know such intimacy? I, I mean, this is an unbelievable, stunning privilege. So how, how, could, how could that be true? Well, look at the next verse. It will shock you. Verse 27. Here's why you can go directly to the Father. For the Father himself, what does it say? Loves you. You, you could just underline that. You could meditate on that for weeks. The Father Himself loves you. In other words, you, at this moment, the disciples, go right into His presence because He loves you so much that you can ask Him directly. Now, I spent some time in John 3 telling you about the five different types of love. Obviously, He loves the world and there the world isn't the sinful, evil system of humanity, context rules. He loves the world of humanity. But we know that he loves his own in a special, redeeming way. Now look down again at the text in 27. For the Father, it says, loves you. Now, you know and I know that um, there's different kinds of love in the New Testament, and they have different expressions. So which Greek word is he using there in 27? For the Father himself loves you. I want you to know that doesn't always happen every single week, but I was stunned here by this statement. Floored by it, actually. It ministered to me 
Because as I'm reading, as I'm studying, and as I have at times my Greek New Testament over open, I just assumed that the Father himself, himself agapes you, or agapao you. That is the, what some say is the supreme form of love. The love of self-sacrifice. The love of the will. The love that doesn't have anything to do with the emotions, if you will. It is a love of sacrifice. A love of the will. A love that would die for someone. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loves the church. You agape her. You die for her. Your proposition in marriage isn't 50-50. It's 100% zero. Your goal in marriage, men, is to be that of Christ who agape the church. But I want you to know that's not the word here. Unbelievable. Stunning to me. You say, well, what word does he use here? Still hard to say because it blows my conception of my mind. He uses the word phileo here. For the Father himself phileos you. You say, well, Scott, what does that mean? Phileo is another derivative of the verb love or another way it's used. It doesn't speak of agape love. Phileo or the city of Philadelphia is the city of brotherly love. And here this term is, is a love of deep affection. It is a deep personal affection. In other words, God not only loves you, sacrifices for you, gives you his son, but amazingly, he actually likes you, is what the word means. He has an affection for you. He has a tender phileo love towards you. He's drawn towards you. God the Father's affections are for you. And he wants to lavish upon you all the blessings that his affection can draw. I don't know if that's how you conceive of God. I don't know if that's how you conceive of God the Father. In other words, you can go straight into his presence. He will transform your trouble into intimacy Four, verse 27 there, the Father himself loves you. And you might ask the question, will he stop loving me? And the answer is no, because it's in the present tense. He continually loves you as I speak with a deep, deep personal affection and likeness towards you. It's amazing that he loves us, even though he knows everything about us, amen? I mean, you can get people, one said, to love you if you don't tell them everything. As soon as you start telling them everything, the group gets smaller, okay? But with God, he loves you, and he knows everything about you. He knows your unfaithfulness. He knows your critical spirit. He knows your lack of commitment. He knows your lack of holiness. He knows all of it. But he has a strong, unending affection for you. It is a marvelous truth. 
In other words, when that hour comes, you don't have to ask me. You can still pray. He's still interceding in the name of Christ. You're still praying in the name of Christ to God the Father, but you can just rush right in and go into the holy of holies. And you might ask the question, well, how come the Father loves me this way? Ever ask that? I mean, part of it is just unconditional grace on you. But the text tells us something else. Look at verse 27. He says, for the Father himself loves you, watch this, because you have loved me. Stop there for a second. He lavishes his love on you. Here's why. Because you love his son. And if you love God's son, then God the Father loves you. That's what the text says. In fact, look back to John 14. Let me just show you this. Wonderful section that we covered. Very similar to that thought. Whoever, 1421, whoever has my commandments, Jesus said, and keeps them, it is me, it is it is, it says, he it is who loves me. And then he says the opposite. And he who loves me, similar though, will be loved by my father. And I will love him and manifest myself to him. Verse 23, Jesus answered, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And my father, there it is again, will love him. And I love this. We will come to him and make our home with him. So here's the wonderful truth of the triune God. God the Father makes his home in your heart. God the Son makes his home in your heart. The Holy Spirit has taken up residence in your hearts. So when you want God to love you, then you love his Son. And if you love his Son, then you are loved by the Father. This is a very, uh, I guess, narrow exclusive relationship. He says, God the Father himself phileos you, and that he does, verse 27, because you have loved me. You say, well, what must I believe? Look at the text, verse 27. You've believed that I have come or that I came from God. Beloved, this is why we study the Bible. This is Christology at its best. It says there in 27, you loved me and have believed. This is what Christians believe, that I have come from God. In other words, you don't believe he's just a good rabbi. You don't believe he's just a good teacher. He's come from God. It is another claim of deity, if you will. Now, not everyone believes that, and certainly few people believe that today. The Jews said that he came from Satan. They said that he was energized by Beelzebub. He said, but you believe that I've come from God, and then look at verse 28, crucial for our confession, that I came from the Father, that I've come into the world, and now I'm leaving the world, and I'm going to the Father. That is a summary of great doctrine. That is a summary of Christology. 
that is a summary what children need to be taught over there at the 10.30 hour. He came from God. He's deity. He came into the world. That's his incarnation. He's leaving the world, if you will, in his humiliation and death and resurrection, and he's going back to his Father. He's ascending into glory, and if you believe that, then you're a Christian. When you deny that, then you're not a Christian. And so, that's what he said, and look what the disciples responded and said in verse 29. Somewhat humorous, I think. The disciples said, ah, I think you can't get inflection, you know, in the, in the Greek New Testament, but that's how I think it went. Ah, ah, now, now, he says, they say to him, you are, verse 29, speaking plainly, and you're not using figure of speech. It's like what some call an aha moment. We get it. Look at verse 30. He says, now we know that you know all things and you don't need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. Now listen, I believe there's sincerity there. I think what they're just saying here is we get it. We believe that. We know you know all things and certainly it all through John's gospel. But right here, remember they were saying to one another back in John 16, to one another, not to him. Hey, what's he talking about a little while? Now you see me, now you don't. What's he talking about there? And he knew what they were thinking even in their private conversations. And so they said, we, we know you all know all things. We know that you don't need to ask anybody a question. You know that Jesus, obviously, he's deity. He's certainly in human flesh, but he never asked anybody a question. At times, he sought to draw people out, but there's nothing that he didn't know. And so they, they said, you've never even asked anybody a question because you came from God. We know you're omniscient. This is a wonderful, question, uh, wonderful, if you will, confession, and I think they mean it, and it would be great if we could just wrap it up and pray right here, but that's not what the, what the text says. It doesn't close that way. Look at verse 31. Jesus answered, do you now believe? And, and I think he's saying here in 32, behold, the hour's coming. still hasn't come yet. Indeed, it has come. In fact, I think Judas is on the way as we're, this is being written. Or they're, they're getting ready to, to come. He just needs to go into the garden. He's going to pray. But the hour has come, verse 32, when you will be scattered, each of you to his own home, and you will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone. The Father is is with me. And so I think here, this hour that's coming is the arrest. The hour is coming when you will flee. Matthew 26, verse 5 says, they all fled. They, defeat, they defected, if you will, momentarily. It was a fulfillment, I think you remember, of Zechariah 13, 7. And I think when Jesus said these things to him, I think they think that the promise of 1623 had already been fulfilled, failing to recognize in that day points to the time subsequent to his death, to his resurrection, to his ascension, to the outpouring of glory. You say, do these disciples have faith? I would say for sure, for sure. I believe the statement that they made there. I believe they were confident in their own heart, but I think their faith is weak. 
I think their faith is overconfident. I mean, you and I would love to believe that our faith is mature, right? That no matter what trial comes along, no matter what temptation comes along, that we have the maturity. But oftentimes we don't. And I would say to you, beloved, these disciples are very young in the faith. Their faith is weak. Jesus at times said, you belong to a certain club, and it's called the O-Ye of little what? Faith club. Oh, they love the Savior, there's no doubt, but they were weak in their faith, overconfident. Jesus said, you're going to run. You're going to run at the crucible of my time, but I'm not alone. The Father's with me. The Father's not on the cross yet where he said, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? But he knows where he's headed, and he said, my Father is still here, but when that time comes, you're going to run. And Peter basically says, oh, no, I'm not going to run. If I have to, I'll die with you. I mean, he thought he was ready. He thought he was strong. He thought he was a rock. But at that moment, he's a pebble, and he wasn't strong. And believe me, when it came, he started running. Oh, praise God, though. They would later be restored. Praise God that at the resurrection, their gloom would turn into joy. Praise God that their sorrow would be turned and transformed into joy by His resurrection. And praise God their trouble would be turned into intimacy by, the, by their love for the Father. But Dodd, the commentator, makes this astute comment. And I loved how he said it this way. He said it is part of the genius of the church that its foundation members were discredited men. Dodd said it owed its existence not to their faith, not to their courage, not to their virtue, but to what Christ had done with them. This they never forgot. And I really believe they never forgot that. So Jesus says to him, look at 33, I've said these things to you, that in me you have peace. He said, in the world you're going to have peace flipsis, tribulation, you're going to have pressure, you're going to be squeezed like a grape, but take heart, I have overcome the world, I have overcome, and he's speaking there, if you will, prophetically of the cross, the resurrection from the grave, the Holy Spirit, he's overcome sin, amen, he's overcome Satan, amen, he's overcome the world, he's overcome the evil system, he's overcome the demonic world, he's overcome Satan himself, he's defeated death, he defeated grave, he defeated sin, and we are more than victorious through him, and the thought here of the text is he wins, the, way, the war has been waged and won, and so he says this to you, take hearts. Take courage. Jesus says, I have overcome the world. And so the resurrection, Pentecost, the Holy Spirit changes everything and he transforms your trouble into joy and your trouble into intimacy. He gives that peace objectively. I could say it this way as we walk from here. He gives it objectively. In other words, it only comes through the cross of Christ. It says in, Ro in Romans 5.1, having been justified by, by faith, we have what? Peace with God. Listen, the only way to have true peace is to have peace with God by being justified through the death of the Lord Jesus Christ on your behalf. That's objective peace that he died in your place. It says in Ephesians that you've been brought near by the blood of Christ, that he himself is our peace. Do you have that peace this morning? Listen, true peace 
is not on a bloody battlefield with swords. True peace comes on a cross on Golgotha by way of his death. But it's given subjectively, secondly. I mean, the world is just fake, fake materialism, fake romance. In fact, if you want fake romance, I've not watched it. Just go watch The Bachelorette. I've read all about The Bachelorette, and I would say what I've read makes it a filthy program. I read about the last episode, not watched it, and I just would encourage you that those who are believers ought to have nothing to do with that show. It's fake materialism, fake romance, fake illusion. And here, he wants to give you not only real peace objectively, but give you peace experientially in the loss of a child, in a financial loss, in the loss of a job, in a boss that drives you nuts, a daughter or son in rebellion. He leaves you with his peace. He says, how do I get that peace? Well, here, I say at least one thing. It comes in prayer. To be, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Listen, he wants you to have objective peace, but he wants you to experience that peace now, and often that peace comes through prayer. But here's the Lord Jesus Christ. The resurrection, his death, Pentecost, the Holy Spirit changes everything. He transforms your trouble into joy, and he transforms your trouble into intimacy with the Father. I pray that you would pursue him.